Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 162 of season 3, 227 of this podcast. This is October 10th, 2021. It is a Sunday morning. The sun is not up, but I am. And we're going to talk about preparing our children to defend against atheism. I've got a question from... JP Chavez, I'd like to get into. But first, I want to talk a little bit about something that's been bothering me, something that I recently encountered that I'm still trying to <clears throat> process. I'm still trying to decide what to do with, what to make of. And that is a conversation I recently had with a manager. And I don't want to give too much away. But I will say, we were having a discussion about hours, about hours, particularly overtime. And there was a, a great interest, I'll put it that way, a great interest in eliminating my overtime at work. Now, to be truthful with you, I do get overtime. I have almost always got some overtime in the course of a week. It's been very unusual in the past decade of oil and gas work for me to get only 40 hours and no more. Most of my 40-hour weeks have been vacation weeks. That is to say, I took the week off, and so I'm only getting paid for the 40 hours of vacation that I put in for and scheduled. But other than that, it's not as though I'm getting 20, 30 hours of overtime a week. 10 hours is pretty standard. 50 hours a week, that's pretty much my speed. An exceptionally heavy week might be pushing 60 hours if we've got a lot of projects going on. But I've got enough going on in my private life, being a husband, father, being involved in church, having friendships, wanting to write, wanting to podcast, that I find a way of either trimming back when I get over the 60-hour threshold or prioritizing things to where, well, that can wait until next week or this I can ask someone else to do or that can just be on the back burner for the time being. But to be honest with you, I don't think that 10 hours of overtime a week is a great deal of overtime. And when you factor in my having, over the course of the summer, lost my drive time, they reclassified drive time as non-compensable time. I'm actually working what would have been 60 hours a week previously, or 55 to 60 hours a week previously. Only now I can only bill for 45 to 50 hours a week. But that's apparently still too many hours. And the odd thing to me is 
what I'll tell you now. I had this conversation with a manager in which I told him in no uncertain terms, I have recently had a job offer in another state that would have matched this job dollar for dollar and the cost of living in this other state, Oklahoma, is much lower. So my spending power would be much higher. And that's kind of a big deal when we're looking at soaring prices for everything. It isn't just the company that is going to have to manage costs. It is employees of the company. And I have rising costs. I have a wife and seven children. And I don't just have a wife. I have a pregnant wife and a stay-at-home mother in my wife. And as such, I am the sole breadwinner. So as I explained to this manager, if my hours are cut back to 40 hours a week, I can't cash flow living in Colorado. I just can't. Something drastic is going to have to change or I will go into bankruptcy. So if you want me to keep turning down job offers in other states, you're going to have to, for one, work with me. But for another thing, more to the point, for the sake of the company, there is work that needs doing. It's not a situation where I work my 40 hours and then for 10 hours I just am present and I charge. Now I am working 50 hours if I put down 50 hours. There is work to be done and I am doing it. And why would you artificially curtail my hours? Other people are getting overtime. I have slightly more overtime than other people do, but it's not a great deal more. And I think my output defends the hours that I'm putting down on my timesheet that I'm being paid for. So this shouldn't be a situation where implications are being made, although they have been made without any merit, without any founding in reality whatsoever, that some people, once their work is done for the day, they just hang out for a couple hours. Mm, Don't know who you're talking about, but that ain't me. In any event, I had this rather honest discussion with this manager. And the response I got when I told him that I've got concerns about rising costs and cash flow and my responsibility to my family to provide, the response I got was, well, we're all in the same boat. I said, really? We're all in the same boat. We all have a stay-at-home wife and mother and seven children with an eighth on the way. We're all in the same boat. So I seem to remember a number of us being single or our children being grown and out of the house now. Or if we have a wife and children, several of us have not as many children as I do. I'm telling you now, if you artificially cut my hours to 40, I am trying to do some things to rearrange. I'm trying to sell my house in Montana. I'm expecting my share of inheritance from my grandmother's estate. But in the meantime, Colorado's an expensive place to live and it's only getting more expensive. 
And if you artificially cut my hours to 40, you will drive me into bankruptcy. The response I got was, we all make personal choices. We all make personal choices. And so I asked the follow-up. I said, you know, what are you talking about? Personal choices. You mean having gotten married and had seven children and homeschooling those children and my wife staying home to homeschool those children? Is that, or are those the kind of personal choices you're talking about? Like I've made the bed and now I have to lay in it. I made some bad choices and now I've got to lay in it. Really? Like I said, we all make personal choices. Uh, okay. Wow. You and I are maybe not going to be best buds. <laughs> Enough about that. Whether I should even have told you that story. It's on my mind. And I think that it represents the attitude towards family life, towards having children that I've talked about for years. The attitude that we have is not accidental, and it's not lazy, and it's not that we just don't care. It's certainly not negligence. It is a religious conviction, if you will, but it is a point of faith on our part that we need to have a biblical attitude towards family, towards having a family. I need to have a biblical attitude towards being a husband and a father, since I am a husband and a father. And my wife and I need to have a biblical attitude when it comes to having and raising children. However many children we have, we want to take seriously what the Bible says about having children. And it isn't about having a lot of children, but it is about embracing children as a blessing if we are capable of providing for children in all ways, financially, emotionally, physically, spiritually, then why not? Why not have more children? If the Lord deems it a blessing he wants to bestow on us, why not have more children? Well, one of the things you might find if you embrace that mindset is that circumstances will change unexpectedly. In this case, I'm feeling frustrated because the circumstances haven't changed for the worse as far as my output at work or the volume and variety of work that needs doing, my ability to perform that work, my integrity when it comes to performing that work and recording how long it takes for me to perform that work. And yet you might get someone with a very different life philosophy, a very different perspective on what's important in life who wants nothing so much as to adjust this one little metric. This one little metric is higher than what they would like and consequences be damned because now our ego is on the line. If I drive you into bankruptcy, so be it. Don't care. Not my problem. That's your problem. Wow. You are a jerk, especially when it's not necessary, when it's not even necessarily all things considered going to benefit the company. It's just going to make you look good in the short term. That is very short-sighted. But again, as you say, we all make personal choices. You're making a personal choice right now. I will have to make some personal choices myself. And we trust the good Lord that he provides. And 
we're just going to rely on that and work hard and be wise and provide things honest in the sight of all men. But Speaking of children, and speaking of providing for children in all ways, I get a question from JP that I'd like to share with you. He was recently listening to a different podcast, not this podcast. I know, it's a shock. How could anybody who's listened to this podcast listen to any other podcast again? But alas, he has listened to a different podcast and he didn't, uh, I don't think, mention the name of this other podcast, but he did say that the featured subject in this episode he was listening to was an apologist by the name of William Lane Craig. And I'm not personally familiar with William Lane Craig. I've heard the name before, but I've never listened to anything or heard anything that he put out. So I'm not familiar with him personally. I became a little bit more familiar with him just in the course of trying to prepare for this podcast episode after getting the question from JP yesterday. But William Lane Craig, from the little bit of research I've done and from what JP told me, he seems to have much more of a formal, academic, philosophical type of apologetic that he favors. And his audience is much more the formal, academic, philosophical type. And so this podcast, this other podcast that JP was listening to, was reacting to a video of William Lane Craig being asked about the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. And Craig, for his part, does not believe that the first part of Genesis, the creation story, Noah and the flood and all of that should be taken as literally true. He believes that part of Genesis should be seen as mythological history and not as literally true. But the striking thing the reactors pointed out per JP was William Lane Craig's tone as he's talking about Genesis 1 through 11 and how Craig seemed to be trying to appease atheists and academia who point to things like the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And they say, see, this is why I can't take the Bible seriously. The thought is that science has debunked the claims about origins made in the Bible and Therefore, it would be foolish and absurd for us to cling to believing that the Bible is true and that modern, secular, humanistic science is mistaken. Now, if that's correct, that Craig is trying to appease, cater to atheists and secular science, I will say this, that is nothing new. 
to give you guys a little bit of backstory, I actually first got into writing because I grew up with Answers in Genesis and going to Kinham events and listening to Kinham talk about the age of the earth and evolution and creation and is the Bible literally true in what it tells us at the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In six days, he created and he rested on the seventh. No, that's not with the Lord. A day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. That's morning and evening, yom, day, six days, rested on the seventh. The earth is about approximately in the neighborhood of six to 10,000 years old. If you go by the genealogies in Genesis, and if you take this as literally true, it's not millions and billions of years old, and it certainly is not self-existent and eternal, and it takes just as much or more faith to believe in the Big Bang as the origin story for the universe and to believe in evolution as the origin story for biological life on Earth, as it does to believe the Genesis account. It's a competing origin story. It's a competing religious system anymore. And so when I very first got into writing, I was fresh off of going to an Answers in Genesis event and I remember being a teenager of 16, 17 years old and checking out scienceforums.net, which is this international forum for scientists all over the world. We're talking PhD level, literal rocket scientists, nuclear physicists, astrophysicists, quantum physicists. I mean, all, all kinds of very, very educated very serious, very intelligent scientists. And I come in there, and I'm sure my grammar and spelling were atrocious, but I started asking questions about creationism versus evolutionary theories. And I quickly got the boot. They did not want me around. They did not want to engage. First I was mocked, then I was blocked. <laughs> they did not want to engage with me. But I went from that and you fast forward a few years and Facebook becomes a thing and I made Facebook into a playground for debating the new atheism, so-called. My brother went to high school his senior year in Jamestown, Ohio. And some of his classmates were atheists. They were new atheists. They were Richard Dawkins fanboys. And so I would post things about the Bible, or I would see them commenting on things other friends of my brother's had commented or posted on Facebook about the Bible, about Christianity, about politics, about God. And we very quickly got into a rhythm of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, regularly debating publicly the new atheism and Christianity. And at the same time, I had several friends from high school, from youth group, from Bible study in high school, who 
had been professing Christians when I first met them. And as they got into their 20s, as they went off to college, as life happened to them, as they got away from their parents, they became agnostics and atheists, a lot of them. And so then I'm engaging them as well. They've got questions. And we had very, very long, lengthy, sometimes heated, but more often just exhausting debates about agnosticism and atheism and rational, philosophical, logical arguments for and against the existence of God or the God of the Bible or the Bible being the inerrant word of God, et cetera, et cetera. And Lauren and I were talking about this yesterday because I told her about JP's question. And again, thank you, JP, for the question. It's a great question, which I haven't read just yet, but I will here shortly. I remember our youth leader, our youth pastor, Tim Crafton, pulling me aside a few times and even sometimes engaging publicly to kind of pour water on my efforts to debate and one of the things that he told me was that God doesn't need defending. To somebody who, whose only tool is a hammer or they're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, but you need to just let the Holy Spirit convict them. You know, give it time. You don't need to defend God. If they don't believe, well then, just be their friend. Just, just be nice. Just do life with them. And I'll confess, that really annoyed me. That really, really irritated me because it seemed like it was lazy, quite frankly. It seemed lazy and passive and not biblical. On the one hand, we're going, we're going to conflate apologetics, making a reasoned defense of the faith, with defending God. Well, I'm not defending God, to be clear. I am reasoning with my friends who are believing things that are not true about God. There's a big difference. How far do you go with this? Saying we don't need to defend God and implying that there is somehow a lack of faith in the character of God on the part of me because I'm insisting on the existence of God to people who are saying God doesn't exist. Or I'm insisting on the goodness of God to people who are claiming God's not good. Or I'm insisting on the truthfulness and unchangeability of God to people who are saying that God is not telling us the truth or he wasn't telling us the truth, but now he's telling us something different. He changed his mind. This doesn't match up. There's an apparent contradiction here, etc., etc., etc. Why would you imply to me as I'm trying to defend the faith not defend God, but defend the faith and good doctrine and instruct and correct people I know who are preaching things, whether they're atheists or they're agnostics, doesn't make a difference. They're preaching things about God that are not true. Why would you come into that scenario and try to pour cold water on it as if I actually have weaker faith than you do with my trying to engage on this. It doesn't follow. So I thought that was very unhelpful and discouraging, quite frankly. 
And for my part, I by and large ignored my one-time youth pastor, if not wondering to myself, well, okay, maybe this explains why so many of my friends from Bible study and youth group days, from high school days, have turned into atheists and agnostics. Maybe this explains it. If this is your attitude towards honest questions but misguided claims, that we should just let it be and let it go whatever direction it will passively, well then I guess it's no surprise that in their own hearts and minds they have done that because they were led in that direction by you. But the other piece I have seen more than once is a kind of allergic reaction to defending what the Bible says in Genesis as being true. How can the Bible be telling us the truth when secular science is making competing truth claims? You say thousands of years. You say created in six days, rested on the seventh. Modern science keeps telling me over and over and over and over again, millions of years. And it says nothing of God. So who's this God character you're bringing into the discussion? Science didn't tell me anything about God. I don't need God. We've got evolution. We've got the Big Bang. Who needs God? Nonsense. So then when you step to the plate to try and do apologetics about the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you will get not a few, but a lot of Christians whose most energetic defense, as they see it, of Orthodox Christian faith is against you trying to defend the literal truth, the literal nature of what we're reading in Genesis, the plain spoken meaning of what we're reading in Genesis. They don't want to waste energy joining you in making a reasoned defense of the scriptures, the integrity of God's word. They don't want to join you in making a reasoned defense of that because that's a waste of time and breath and that's contentious and a distraction, but they will invest time and energy arguing with you about why that's a waste of time and why it's not such a big deal, really, if we believe in an old earth or that God used evolution, which is also known as theistic evolution. God used evolution, which is also, by the way, what William Lane Craig believes. God used evolution to create man maybe 750,000, 500,000 years ago, thereabouts. Certainly not six to 10,000 years ago, but 500,000 years ago to a million years ago, somewhere in there. It's remarkable to me. And when I think about the logical consistency and the feasibility, the internal consistency and the feasibility of debating with atheists on the one hand who are waving their little Richard Dawkins flags, their Sam Harris flags, their Christopher Hitchens flags, throwing out quotes at you as if their Savior, their Lord and Savior, spoke in a great sermon 
It is written, Have you not heard? Thus saith Dawkins. <laughs> when I compare debating with atheists who have that mentality to debating with Christians who are squishy on whether we should really be engaging in apologetics on these things, defending the literal truth of God's word. In the case of the atheists, there was a lot more of a clear-cut opponent. And what I mean is, when Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens argue against theism in general and Christianity in particular in our context, you know what you're dealing with, right? I don't believe in God. Therefore, I don't believe in your Genesis. Therefore, I don't believe in your Bible. Therefore, I don't believe in your Jesus and change my mind or fight me, right? You know what you're dealing with there. What's odd and what's a lot more difficult and frankly discouraging is when professing Christians start coming into the debate as you're trying to engage that. And not a few times, but a lot of times, people I didn't even know who would just be seeing this public debate going on would comment and say, well, I'm an actual Christian and what you're saying doesn't seem very Christian at all because that's not very loving and that's not reasonable and that's a very ignorant thing to say and we have to agree with science. We're actually ruining our testimony if we disagree with modern secular humanistic science. And because people mock Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis and the Institute for Creation Research, et cetera, et cetera, because creationists are mocked in the mainstream, therefore, you sounding like those creationists or referring to them in a positive way as if they have useful things to say, as if their arguments are valid, that's so embarrassing. And I'm sorry, atheists. I'm going to apologize to the atheists right now for your conduct here because this is really embarrassing. I don't want to be identified with this. This isn't Christianity. You doing apologetics is grounds for my issuing an apology. But that leads me to JP's question and subsequently my answer to the question. Continuing on where I left off because I started giving you backstory and now here we are. It does seem like that kind of atheism isn't quite as prevalent anymore as it was years ago. It's been about a decade since I had those really intense back and forths about Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and even the quotes I see coming out of those guys in recent years have far more to do with sounding an alarm bell with regards to the radical left than they do warning against Christian faith in public life. But there are at least two kinds of atheists. On the one hand, you have the science has debunked the Bible. Richard Dawkins loves to engage in this kind of atheism, proselytizing. If you read The God Delusion, he goes back and forth between trying to describe these phenomena that we have studied in modern science and documented and described and understood better and poo-pooing and mocking 
claims made in the Bible. As if it follows. It's a non sequitur, by the way. It's a red herring. It's a non sequitur. It does not follow that us understanding something about astrophysics therefore means that it's ridiculous that Jesus walked on water. Well, wait a second. That's absurd. You're trying to blind us with science. This is a carnival trick. It's a shell game. You're trying to use some rhetorical sleight of hand to hide the pee. But there is that kind of atheism around still, surely, without a doubt. There's also the more moral argument, you could say, from atheists like Sam Harris, who say that the God of the Bible is evil. And we can be more good, better, morally, if we reject the God of the Bible. Because look at the Crusades, look at the Inquisition, look at the Salem Witch Trials, look at all of the oppression which has been caused by Christianity over the past two millennia. Look at genocide, so-called, in the Old Testament when the children of Israel are possessing the land of Canaan, which was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which was actually possessed by Abraham, even though he left, went elsewhere, still was his possession. He had the first chief primary claim to it. But Harris will say, the God of the Bible is not good. Dawkins will also say that. The God of the Bible is not good. He's a villain. And those who worship him become villains too. That's the claim of the new atheists who aren't really new atheists. They just were rebranded, repackaged because publishing companies wanted to sell books. But JP asks this question. And here we are, half an hour plus into the episode, and I finally get to JP's question. Which kind of atheism do we need to spend more of our time and energy trying to equip our kids to defend against? On the one hand, you've got the science has debunked Christianity type of atheism. And so if we're going to prepare our children to respond to that or be protected in their own hearts and minds against that, then we're going to be educating them on the scientific method. We're going to be talking with them about what's actually in the Bible versus what modern science is claiming and presuppositions and how do we handle the evidence and what are the potential problems with assuming too much with regards to radiocarbon dating, for instance, with macroevolution versus microevolution. We've observed microevolution, but macroevolution is an extrapolation. Microevolution, we can attest from observable evidence in real time. Macroevolution is conjecture or on the other hand, if we are dealing with the moral kind of atheism, which is a separate piece, we're talking with our children about what is the standard? Who sets the standard? Who defines what is morally good? Do we sit in judgment over God as if we are appealing to a standard that is above God? Or should we ask the atheist, what gives him the authority 
And what makes him so sure that his standard of morality is correct and that which we find in the Bible is not correct? From whence comes this certainty? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins, atheists. Where were you when he created the heavens and the earth? I think it's a very interesting question from JP. I think it's very interesting. Which kind of atheism do we need to spend more of our time and energy trying to equip our kids to defend against? For one thing, I would say, and JP actually, we talked back and forth about it over signal audio messages last night, but he pointed this out. In both cases, you have man sitting in judgment of God. So the rejection of God's primacy, his sovereignty, is a presupposition. That actually is the precursor to us sitting in judgment over God in the case of atheism. Whether it's the moral argument or it's the scientific argument against God, you presuppose that God is not really God. That rejection, and I find this in my experience debating atheists, that rejection is a foregone conclusion. Like MC Hammer can't touch this. All of the specific examples given of apparent contradictions in the text, of apparent proofs that the universe is so many millions and billions of years old, that macroevolution is an established fact and not a theoretical conjecture, which can't be proven. All of the claims of God being genocidal and evil and capricious and cruel and unjust, all of those can be answered one after another, after another, after another, reasonably, patiently, cogently, clearly, confidently. And the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So he will never run out of specific things to try and throw at you make you feel foolish to throw you off the scent of making disciples, being a disciple yourself in obedience to the scriptures, revering the scriptures, saying and acting like it is written. And at the end of the, at the end of the day, that presupposition that God is not really God, that I am wiser than God, it's satanic. So, it seems to me as though dealing with that, that core defiance against God, that's pretty all-encompassing, regardless of which kind of atheism perhaps 10 to 20, 30 years from now is more prevalent or more pervasive in society or it's more on the warpath trying to shake the faith of our children. Dealing with that common thread is where we should invest our time and energy. Do we sit in judgment over God or does God sit in judgment over us? Is God God or are we actually in a power struggle to be God over God? That attitudinal component is what we need to address either way. And I do think, I think we should do both and I would lean more towards addressing the scientific claims in particular because you can teach your children science even as you're 
showing them how to evaluate scientific claims. I think it's a dual purpose more than just potentially fruitlessly arguing with atheists who are going to be stubborn and willful, bent on destruction, foolish, wise in their own eyes, though. There's a dual purpose there in that as you're talking with them about how to evaluate critically scientific truth claims, for better or worse, whether you confirm those scientific truth claims with reasonable certainty or you reject them or you relegate them to the status of mere speculation but not observable fact, that will come in handy. I think COVID should show us that there's a great need for Christians to be able to question the truth claims, the competing truth claims of modern secular science, particularly where modern secular science has been wedded with the new atheism. And you have a lot of secular scientists who are fools, who have no wisdom, who have said in their hearts that there is no God. And so therefore, their scientific approach, their new atheism, their militant anti-theism, anti-Christianity can be expected to result in some very wacky and even dangerous ideas. And if we uncritically believe anything that a man with a white lab coat tells us, we might find ourselves embracing some very ungodly, very dangerous, very destructive, very foolish proposals. Besides just, does God exist or doesn't he? But I mean, making us unfruitful and unproductive in our witness and our testimony, hampering our ability to honor God, to serve God effectively. Now, JP and I, one other thing that we discussed is how I, I personally, and he agrees, I personally don't think at the present new atheism is as much of a threat to the life and practice the doctrine and practice of the church in America as social justice is, as critical race theory is. I think the far greater peril to us is from the likes of William Lane Craig and not from the likes of Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. Sam Harris is a known quantity. Richard Dawkins is a known quantity. William Lane Craig is sneaking in heresy, plain and simple. And I don't mean just his view on Genesis 1 through 11. Monothelitism is something that he's a proponent of, for instance. Jesus has one will. Historically, anyway, that's been regarded as heresy. And the folks, <laughs> the folks who want so badly to appease those outside of the church and to adapt and change the teaching of the church, the historical orthodox teaching of the church, so as to make it less offensive, they can be found doing their work, plying their trade, whether we're talking about making the Bible less offensive to folks who are offended by slavery. And if you read the Civil War as a Theological Crisis, you'll find that the most radical abolitionists at a certain point 
heard the arguments by the pro-slavery pastors and theologians in the South that Bible teaching doesn't explicitly condemn slavery, it makes room for slavery, that the scriptures describe us as believers in slavery terms, and if slavery is immoral categorically, well then, what sense do you make of that? The most radical abolitionists heard all of this and said, well, in that case, we don't believe the Bible is true at all because it transgresses our chief idol of liberty. We've made an idol out of liberty, and it's an extra-biblical concept of liberty. And so now we reject the Bible because it interferes with us worshiping this false god we've created in our own minds, in our own rhetoric. The folks inside the church who are going to try so hard to appease the social justice warriors that they redefine justice and literally write social justice into the margins of their Bible and start doing the dirty work of leftist community organizers and carrying water for Antifa and asking questions like my cousin and her husband asked years ago, not too many years ago, a couple years ago. Yes, we're with Crew, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ. But what is a protest really? Who says that a protest has to be peaceful? What's, what really is the difference between a riot and a protest anyways? I mean, come on. The folks who want so badly to be accepted and embraced by those outside the church are the far greater threat to the doctrine and practice of the church in our day, and I would say in every age. In Martin Luther's day, the greatest threat to the health of the church was not the Ottoman Empire trying to conquer Rome and conquer all of Christendom, conquer the world for Islam. The greatest threat to the life and practice of the church was the Roman Catholic Church, was the Pope and the bishops and the cardinals, the tradition that had built up, which was even there, in all too many cases, a trying to blend extra-biblical ideas into the fabric of the scriptures, God's word, that gospel which was delivered once for all and originally, which is sufficient. It doesn't need to be enhanced. The truth doesn't need to be enhanced. I think that social justice, critical race theory right now pose the greatest threat to the church in America and not from outside, from inside. That's why I make so much of a fuss about Tim Keller and David Platt and Paul David Tripp because I think they pose a far, far greater threat than Antifa and Black Lives Matter. I think Joe Biden identifying himself as a devout Catholic and governing in a way that's entirely contrary to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, which is, for all the Catholic Church's faults, at least nominally Christian. Yes, I believe in my Roman Catholicism, but I'm going to govern like the devil right now. Like the devil himself hands me my policy proposals. I think that kind of dynamic is what poses the greatest threat to our children. And as such, I mean, you can look at the new atheism of 10, 15, 20 years ago, and you can say, 
with merit. This new atheism may have crept in so successfully to the thinking of a lot of professing Christians and even Christian pastors that they accepted what Sam Harris was saying because they refused to get in there, roll up their sleeves, and fight. They accepted the core argument of the new atheists, that Christianity needed to be expunged from public life. Okay, well then, should you still engage in public life? Well, yeah, of course. You just have to leave your Christianity at home. Oh, okay. So what's going to fill the moral vacuum? Well, leftism, of course. Ah, okay. So these things go hand in glove. And 20 years from now, the result of that, if unchecked, is going to be communist China, communist North Korea, communist Russia, Islamofascist Iran ruling the world. And America being a hollowed out shell of its former self from a superpower standpoint. And so at a certain point, the chickens will have all come home to roost. They have, they're gradually coming home to roost. We are gradually reaping what we have sown. But I, at least in my personal experience, some of those friends of mine that were atheists and agnostics in high school, as the left has gotten more and more virulent and militant, and unjust and evil and oppressive and insane and chaotic. We've actually found more agreement with one another against the social justice warriors in the church. You know, I think of my friend Cody Smith, who was, I don't remember if he identified as an agnostic or an atheist, but he was very adamant one way or the other in rejecting the Bible and Christian faith 10, 15 years ago. Very adamant in rejecting the Christian faith and embracing doubt, embracing disbelief. Now his older brother, meanwhile, Nathan, he was the good son. He was the squeaky clean, everybody likes him, stereotypical popular Christian kid. He goes off to college, studies to become a public school teacher, gets into teaching, Next thing you know, he is promoting Black Lives Matter and critical race theory and social justice hard. And Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, George Floyd, each one of these guys who makes it into the mainstream news cycle as being a supposed victim of systemic racism, he was absolutely, as hard as anyone could, arguing that that is God's truth. And we are fake Christians if we don't get on board with Black Lives Matter in a hurry, if we don't get all in on reparations and whatever it is that they demand of us and overthrow the system and social justice is biblical justice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And lo and behold, as that has happened more and more, and as you see riots being excused, you see violence being justified and excused. And you see even the most tepid of questions of, well, wait a second, is that true? Is that, have we looked at the evidence? Has the evidence come in? Do we know what happened here? Are we being played here? The social justice Christians, it's like they're inoculated against arguments that are biblical 
because they think they are being biblical because they've allowed their definition of God's word to be fused with these extra biblical ideas to the point that the, the biblical teaching is no longer recognizable. But it is, as JP pointed out, it is very similar to the core problem with whichever kind of atheism you're dealing with, whether it's the moral or the scientific kind of atheism. We as modern men, scientists, sit in judgment over the truth claims about the origin of the universe and biological life made in the Bible. We will judge whether God is telling the truth or not. We as modern philosophical enlightened men who have Wikipedia and Google and YouTube, we will sit in judgment over God as to whether he was in the right, whether his ways are right. We will sit in judgment over God. But the social justice crowd, the critical race theory crowd inside the church, embracing that attitude without recognizing that they have embraced that attitude, without being willing to consider in so many cases that they've embraced that attitude, represents far more of a pernicious and subtle threat to the doctrine and practice of the church in our day. So, JP, I thank you for the question. I think it's a great question. I think, you know, one last thought I'll give you. As I was talking with my son, Josiah, about this, I had up some Wikipedia articles I was trying to study on hyper-Calvinism also. That's a topic for another day. But New Atheism, Hyper-Calvinism, William Lane Craig. And I told him, as I'm trying to explain all this, what's this and what's that and what sense can we make of it? I said, really, at the end of the day, the best thing you can do to protect your heart and your mind is study God's word. Really get in there and study it so that you know where to look specifically when somebody makes a claim that's not true and that's not biblical, that doesn't match what's in God's word. Think rightly about approaching the scriptures and reading them and referencing them. Hide them away in your heart so that you don't sin against him. But I got to leave it there. So Sunday morning, as I said, I need to run, get another cup of coffee, smoke my pipe, and then take my family to church. But as always, Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.